Good morning, church. I was glad when Miss Angela said happy resurrection day, took me back to my grandma's house. Took coming to America to realize this is called Easter, apparently. Some of us around the world, we celebrate the resurrection today. Um, It's a joy to be with you this morning. I think one of the great blessings of being a Christian is that, you know, we are this religion or this faith that was born in the East, right? But now it's in the West and it's growing in the global South. And it's this beauty about this God that we serve who reminds us on days like today to celebrate with the world around us. You know, I was glad that we prayed for um, people in Sri Lanka this morning, because if we're truly brothers and sisters in Christ, their building burning down is our building burning down. You know, last week we remembered Louisiana and the three churches that were burned there. You know, the Notre Dame Cathedral. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of burning of churches going on. But praise God that the burning of the Holy Spirit that lives within us will never die. Amen? Praise God that the fires can go up, but the church is God's people. And God's people since the beginning have been going on. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the joy of the resurrection. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your plan of salvation that includes this whole world. We thank you that you so loved us, you sent your son. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you so love us, you've bid us come. You so loved us, you've drawn us to the son, Jesus Christ. You so love us, you unite us in this room. And Lord Jesus, how you love us. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your sacrifice so that we, the lost children of our God and King, can come home again. We celebrate your resurrection for it means life for us, for it means victory for us too. In your holy and precious name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 28. I'll be reading the very first 10 verses of Matthew 28. He is risen. Oh, all right, y'all sleeping on me. All right, ready? So every time you hear he is risen, you're supposed to say he is risen indeed. And, and well, yeah, you're just going to say he is risen. He is risen indeed. That's what I'm talking about. All right, Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just, hey. (laughs) I knew that one was coming. I tried to prepare for it and it didn't work. He has risen. From the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This week, we've joined with the whole world. We've joined with the church around the world to celebrate what we call Holy Week. We started off last week on Palm Sunday where Jesus has this shining moment where all of Israel, all of the Jews and diaspora had come home to Jerusalem to celebrate their liberation, to celebrate Passover when the great God took them out of slavery in Egypt and sent them off to the promised land. Everyone was coming to celebrate, yet Jesus, our Prince of Peace, rides in on a donkey to ask the people, 
am I your king? A question that Jesus has been asking for thousands of years now. And while earthly kings will, will take over kingdoms by, by power, by military might, by, by political savvy, maybe they make deals. We serve a king who laid it all down. How did Jesus take power? He laid down his life. The Lord Jesus Christ, who had the right to this world. He's the creator who spoke the world into existence. He's the Lord God who can, has the power to forgive sins. He's the one who's existed forever. This world was his, yet he chose to usher in his kingdom by laying down his life. So we travel with Jesus this holy week, and we got to Monday Thursday, or Holy Thursday, but we have to stop and recognize that the God of all creation, the creator of the world, spoke the world into existence, yet he became lower than a servant to serve his disciples. You know, back then, foot washing wasn't something that was necessarily a glamorous job. In fact, that the slaves and the servants would fight over who doesn't get the foot wash. Yet Jesus, our Christ, stoops low and does the humble job of not just washing the feet of those who are, are loyal to him, but he washes the feet of his betrayers. And I say betrayers because it's not just Judas who betrayed Jesus. Because you remember when he got time, he gets to the cross. The disciples left, or if I correct myself, the men left and the women stayed. Jesus is this great Lord of all creation and he stoops down to wash the disciples' feet. And it's not just Judas who betrayed him, all of them betrayed him. The deserters, but he still washed their feet. And he institutes this communion, this beautiful covenant where he says, you know, I am yours and you are mine. I belong to you and you belong to me. In that culture, there was a great sacrifice to, to seal the relationship. And Jesus chose to, to himself be the sacrifice. That instead of an animal, he would be the lamb that was slain. Instead of a, a, a bread that was broken, it would be his body that was broken for us. And the blood would seal our destiny forever. So to say that my victory is your victory. My covenant is with you. I belong to you. You belong to me. You, the lost sheep, can now come home again. And then we got to Good Friday. You know, this season I've been in Matthew and I've been, I've been tracking with Matthew. And there's a couple of things I recognize from Matthew's gospel that's, just, that's really genius, for lack of a better term. Matthew, right before he, he enters the Jesus and the Passion and the, the Holy Week and, and then the Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday, right before in Matthew 25, he has this, um, this is a great, I don't know, it's not really a parable because Jesus is telling what's going to happen. In Matthew 25 is that famous saying where Jesus talks about him coming back as the son of man in all his glory. When he's going to gather all the world to himself. One of the reasons we know Jesus is God is he's the only one who's fit to judge. So when he gathers all of the world around him, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And you remember that passage, it's a famous passage, where Jesus says to the sheep, he says to the faithful, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was an immigrant and a refugee and you didn't build a wall, but you brought me into the living room. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visit me. Come home. But then he also says to the other, <laughs> he says to the goat, for I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, a refugee and an immigrant. You built your wall for me. 
I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't care for me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And we love this passage because it's a, it's a call to arms, so to speak, right? We're peace-loving people, but we call arms in service and love. But the call to arms is simply, there's going to be people in society that society leaves behind, but I've sent my spirit and I've sent you, my church, to love the least of these. But here's the genius of Matthew. He puts that right before the crucifixion to remind us that Jesus becomes the sacrifice. Jesus doesn't just talk about the least of these. On the cross, our Jesus Christ becomes the least of these. Because on the cross, he was hungry and his body was broken and it was the only bread. He was thirsty and they tried to give him wine mingled with gall to dull the pain. And he said, no, I will shed my blood because the blood that flows from my veins matters in the blood that flows in everyone else's veins. I was a stranger. They drove me out of the city of David. They drove me to a hillside. They crucified me on a hill outside the city. I didn't even have my own tomb. Someone else had to let me use their tomb. I was naked. One of the things I love about Matthew's gospel is that we're a very violent society. So when we look at the crucifixion, we just think about the violence that Jesus suffered. But when you read through Matthew, it's not the violence that's too much. It's the humiliation that the God of the universe suffered for us. It's the people parading around, parading him like a fake king, putting the crown of thorns and twisting it in his ears, on his head, kneeling sarcastically before him, making up a fake scepter and then beating him with the scepter. Matthew is struck not by the violence, but that the God of this universe is humiliated for you. He was naked on the cross. You know, art is beautiful. But art does us a great injustice because a lot of times we see pictures of Jesus on the cross. They give him the dignity of covering him. But there was no dignity on Calvary's cross. The God of this universe was stripped naked, bleeding and dying on that cross. And he wasn't sick, but he was sickly from all the beating, from the whips and the lashes in his back, from the blows to his head. And he was in prison not just for our sins, but by the Roman soldiers who guarded the cross, who guarded the tomb. Jesus became the least of these on Calvary's cross. So when Jesus calls you to the least of these, it's not just a figurative thing where he's saying, you know, the poor are like me. No, no, no. He became poor. And on the cross, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was sick. He was naked. He was the stranger. Matthew looks at the cross and he sees humiliation. But more than humiliation even, he sees a God who loves you. So you can dress them. You know, there's something in writing called dramatic irony, right? They call them, oh, you think you're the king of the Jews. They forgot he's the king of the world. They knelt before him sarcastically and say, oh, yeah, look how powerful you are. Where there's going to come a day where every knee shall bow. They beat him with the scepter and they said, you know what? Show how powerful you are. And we sometimes do the same thing. We get to places in life where like, God, show up. God, show these people how powerful you are. Because we think power is something to just be paraded in front of. But again, our God shows power by laying down his life. Our God shows power by dying on the cross. Our God shows power by giving himself up for you and for me and for our world. 
one of the most fascinating things that happens when Jesus is on the cross on this Good Friday is there's three hours of just complete darkness. It's so dark that everyone knows something's happening. In that culture, they, they saw the darkness as, as some kind of omen or some kind of judgment being done. And people argue, was it an omen? Was it judgment? How can it not be both? Because you see, in our culture, we like to make things an either or, but God tends to be a both and. So the darkness is covering the entire land. And Jesus finally, after taking all his pain and his punishment, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for 2,000 years now, we've gotten it wrong. Because we forget that our God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We forget that there's no darkness that God can shine his light into. We forget that even though we might feel forsaken by God, he never lets us go. So why then does Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because one, he's God, two, he's king, and three, he sees something that we haven't seen for thousands of years. Because when Jesus is on the cross, he's watching everyone else. And what he's remembering is, you know what? I put songs on David's heart. You call them Psalms. And if you go back and you read Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, you'll see that every single thing that's happening to Jesus, from the mockery to the beating to the disdain, everything has happened as David wrote it. So Jesus is crying, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Not because he knows God's forsaken him, but because he wants all of us to see it is being done. What David predicted is what is now happening. You see my suffering, but remember, this was all predicted, and God is in control. It's not that God's forsaken me, it's that I'm giving myself up, and I know everything that's happening to me. So when he says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Don't let the devil tell you that in your darkness, God forsakes you. Don't let the devil tell you when you can't feel God that he's not holding you already. Don't let the devil tell you that because you don't feel close to God, that God is not near to you. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, God lives inside of you. And I don't know how much closer God can get when he's already living inside of you. Jesus wants us to go back to Psalm 22 because at the end of that psalm, the psalmist trusts his fate in God's hands. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So after all the suffering, all the darkness, he says, this is what David predicted, can you not see? This mockery, this disdain, everything, this is what David predicted. This is what I'm going through. Can you not see? But at the end of the time, I'm going to say, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. They said, he trusts God. Let God save him. And Jesus says, I trust my father, and I will put my hands and my life in the hands of my father. Amen? Amen. You know, three people who I think knew Jesus best say it like this. Paul, who's one of the greatest theologians ever, a great man of scripture and knowledge, he says, you know, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter, who is the man of action, always willing to jump out the boat or to cut off someone's ear if they talk too much. Peter said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. And then John, who was Jesus' best friend, 
He knew the person of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He looked into Jesus' eyes and his spirit and his soul. He said, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him was no sin. On Calvary's cross, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. The one who did no sin take on our punishment for our sins. And the one in whom there was no sin was crucified so that we can be set free. But before you get to Sunday, you got to not just remember Friday. But I had a great mentor who reminded me this week that, you know, what? I think most of us live on Saturday. After the death, the confusion, the darkness, the where is God? You know, Hank, I might know that God's with me, but I just don't feel him. I might know that God's alive, but I'm not sure. Does he see me? Does he really see what's going on down here? Funny thing that happens also on Saturday is these pirates, or pirates, these priests and pilots have this meeting. I guess if you take priests and pilots together, you get pirates. So that, that's where pirates are from. You didn't know that. I didn't know that until three seconds ago either. So we're, we're going there. You have to remember, these are the same priests who once yelled at Jesus in public for healing on the Sabbath. This is not just a regular Sabbath. This is the Sabbath around the time of Passover when all of the Jewish world is in town. Yet Jesus couldn't heal on the Sabbath. But the funny thing about resurrection is Jesus predicted it three times. He said it over and over again. But his disciples are surprised. Well, the men are surprised. We'll get to that later. That the people who followed him are surprised. That the, the Romans and the priests, though, they were prepared in a weird way. Because the priests go before Pilate and they say, Pilate, this deceiver Jesus Christ, he said on the third day he's going to resurrect and he's going to be raised again. But what I want you to do is I want you to seal it with the official seal of Rome. I want you to put guards by the door because we don't want him going in there and stealing the body, these disciples. And the irony is these are the same men who ran away. When Jesus was being killed, and now they're going to go to the grave and steal the body. But you don't got to make sense. You just got to go with it, right? So they go to Pilate, and I, and I missed this for years. You know what Pilate's response is, is basically, try your best. You know why Pilate said that? Because when Jesus died, not only was there the three hours of darkness, but the veil of the temple was ripped in half. Right? When Jesus died, there was a great earthquake, and everyone knew something was going on. People who didn't even believe was like, oh my gosh, he was the son of God. When Jesus died, the dead who had died in the Lord were resurrected and running around the streets of Jerusalem. So by the time they get to Pilate and they want to seal him in the gate, Pilate is like, did you not feel the earthquake? Did you not see these people running in the streets? Did you not see the darkness on the land? Yet you want me to seal it? Do your best. And that's what they do. They get the official seal. They seal the tomb. They get the soldier. They get the guards. And they're all set. One of the greatest things about our faith has been in the old and in the new. When David said, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. John, who's Jesus' best friend, looked at Jesus and he looked at the world and he looked at us and he says, you know, in this world, darkness seems like it's winning. Darkness seems all around you. But guess what? The darkness is fading. Why? The true light is already shining. And that's what we have by the time we get to Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, Mary and Mary show up to the tomb. And I love this because in a culture that doesn't value women, Jesus says, you know what? My first messengers will be women. In a world where the men got all the credit, they're the ones who ran. 
I want to say that again. I know it's going to make you feel bad, but he's got to get over it. I'm not saying that it's what Jesus did, all right? It's not my fault. Don't blame me. God values women. It's okay. You can live with it. But all of the men ran. I want you to hear that this morning. We think John stayed, and he was next to Mary, but everybody else is gone. Mary and Mary are there at the cross when the men ran. They're there at the burial when the men ran. And I think God is very intentional that they're there at the resurrection to be his witnesses. Just this week, two of my sisters, Austin Channing Brown and Messiah College, and I have another sister, Karen Gonzalez in Baltimore, wrote a beautiful piece for Sojourners where they both reminded us in, in speaking in Austin and in, in, in Karen's uh, article. They reminded us that this world, when God's ready to make a revolution, the world worries about the men, right? In Jesus' day, but also in Moses' day, they were so worried about the men, but when God's ready to announce himself to the world, you better worry about the women. Because in Egypt, it was the midwives who were going to go before Pharaoh and say, I'm not going to kill these kids. In Egypt, it was Miriam, the little girl, who said, you know what, my brother's going to live. It was Jacobet, the mother, who went before Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, I should take care of the baby. That's my baby. And it was Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the king, the daughter of the most powerful man on earth, who went before her father and says, I will raise him as my own. And that's where liberation comes from. When the men run, praise God, we got women. Amen? Amen. But what I love most about this is not just God honoring women, but it's the intentionality here is that the ones who were faithful and dare with him on the cross, the one who was there with him on his burial, are the same ones that now here to see the resurrection. Why does that matter? That matters because we have a God who's faithful and we have a God who sees you. There's so many of us who've been like, I've been a Christian for 20 years, trying my best. Does God see me? Yes, yes, he does. I've been a Christian for five minutes and I'm trying to be faithful in his heart. Does God see me? Yes, yes, he does. We have a God who's faithful. So be faithful to him because he sees you and he will use you to do even greater things. So God doesn't just elevate these women. He sees their faith. And he rewards their faith. So in a culture that doesn't value them, God says, you know what? They will be my witnesses. And here's the sad reality is the church started off doing this well. But then like an artist, you know, like a music artist who puts out the first CD and is really good. And the rest of the catalog is trash. That's my um, theological state of what the church has done to women. We start off really good elevating and, 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 and knowing that women are equal. But now for thousands of years even, we've not only muted their witness, we've taken their voice. Oh, I'll take that back. We've tried to take their voice. But God will have none of it. Jesus values women even though the culture and the church didn't. Jesus uplifts women even though the culture and the church didn't. And I'm going to say if we're going to be Christians, we better do better following our God because if God says they're my first witnesses, maybe it's time we listen. So the women get to the, 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 the tomb and, and they're excited and, or they're going and maybe they're a little bit confused. And Mark's gospel to talk about maybe they're going to, to finish the burial rites and they hit, it, it dawns upon them, who's going to roll away the tomb? That's what I love. This is my favorite part of the story. Every time you see the angels in the Bible, they're terrifying. Except this angel. I want to know his name. When we get to heaven, we got eternity. I'm going to have a conversation with this young man. Because he seems to be the most laid back angel of all time. Like every other angel is just shining, right? It's just like, don't be afraid. He comes in. 
He rolls the tomb and he sits on top of the rock just waiting. You know, we like to think that, you know, God, you know, pushed away the tomb so Jesus could come out. Until you remember, Jesus is God. He don't need to push out the tomb. He could just come out if he want to. So why did the angel roll away the tomb? Because when the women come, he says, no, 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 you're looking for Jesus. He has risen. Come and see. God doesn't need the tomb to be rolled away to resurrect. But he needs us to see that the body ain't there no more. Amen? And then something beautiful happens. He doesn't just invite them to come and see that Jesus is resurrected. He invites them to go and tell. And the NIV has done a lot of great revisions, but I wish they would change this one to actually be correct on this verse. Because at the end, what the angel tells them is like, go and tell the brothers that Jesus is risen. The Greek is actually Adelphos. You know, if you're from Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, the idea here is brethren. If you've been in the church for a while, you know we're Harrisburg brethren in Christ. There's a difference between brothers and brethren. The idea of brethren here is that not just my sisters and brothers, but it's my people. So it's not just go tell the men, even though they ran away and they need to hear it. The idea here is go tell my sisters, go tell my brothers, go tell everyone who calls me Lord that I have risen. He says brethren here. He doesn't say go tell my brothers. He says go tell my people. Go tell the ones who believe. Go tell the ones who are in the darkness that joy has come in the morning. Christ is risen. And as they're walking away, maybe a little scared because they're like, how do we tell these scared men that Jesus is alive? How do we explain all of this? And then Jesus shows up. Now, some translations say Jesus has greetings. Some translations just say Jesus has rejoice. Some translations just say that Jesus, you know, announces his presence. But the Johnson Living Translation, which will be on 30 years, says Jesus says, what's up? <laughs> That's Greek. Because in the greeting that Jesus did, there's something that we miss in the English translation, right? Whatever greeting he gave them was what he normally greeted them. So you think about the person who means the most to you or people you love, and whatever secret greeting you have, whatever you call them, that's what he says to them. That's what he says to them because he doesn't want them to just know he's resurrected. He wants them to know that he's resurrected. The same Jesus they knew was the same Jesus who stood in front of them. So instead of being like, greetings, earthlings, he says, what's up? You can take that to the seminary. You'll be good. Now, for thousands of years, we've been talking about this resurrection. And one of the great tragedies we do in our world today is to assume that we're smarter than people back then. And we do it all the time, right? So one of the ways we say we're smarter back then is like, obviously people don't raise from the dead, so it doesn't happen. So we come up with these great big theories, you know? One theory is that we had, maybe they just, they shared a collective vision. And it's interesting because if you know something about vision, it doesn't tend to be collective, right? If people have a dream, like some of them might all have kind of the same dream, but for 500 plus people to all have the same vision multiple times, it seems a little suspect to me, but that's okay. We're smarter today. Some people even said, you know, I don't really think Jesus resurrected. It was almost like it was a telegram from heaven. In which case, my non-smart self says, did they have telegrams back then? Or some people just say, you know, it's just about the spirit of Jesus' message going on. And it sounds good, 
until you realize what they mean by the message. Because one of the beauties of Jesus Christ is that he came to proclaim the message, but in death and resurrection, he lived the message. The gospel is full. And if the message being going forth is that the God of this world came to live on earth to show us how to please God. And if he after showed us how to please God, he went to the tree to die on the cross for our sins. And after he died on the cross for our sins, he was raised again on the third day. And after he was raised again on the third day, he's seated at the Father's right hand, prepared heaven so it's perfect for you. If that's the message they want to say of Jesus, then we can join them in saying that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, resurrection matters this morning because Jesus predicted it and every one of God's promises come true. Resurrection matters this morning because the angels witnessed to it in every single gospel. Resurrection matters this morning because the tomb was empty. Resurrection matters this morning because Jesus appeared to not one, not two, not three, not four, over 500 appearances. It's kind of amazing, right? If there was an accident right now at 22nd and Dairy and 100 of us ran out there, I guarantee you we'd have at least 25 different versions of that accident. But it's kind of amazing that Jesus had these 500 appearances and they all had the same story, that Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. And what about the transformation? Now, we know the women were always faithful because they are. But what about the transformation of some of these men? who had ran away and fled and now gave their lives for the gospel. What about the fruit of this work? Because all of us in this room are descendants of that truth and these disciples and these women and these men who went out into the world to preach the gospel. You're here this morning because of their transformation. That's the power of the resurrection. Resurrection is important. We'll end with this. Now I'm about to run late, but it's all right. You know, my, my dinner can wait too, I guess. I'd like to invite Pastor Esty and the, the worship and the choir back up. But I think there's four things that resurrection compels us to do. And by compels, that means you have to do it, right? The first one is resurrection compels belief. Resurrection is literally the line in the sand. It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his teachings. Resurrection is the line in the sand that I believe that he's God, that I believe that he lived, that I believe that he died, and I believe he's resurrected. And here's the beauty of resurrection. It didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. When we look at our own lives, we can see where we were dead, and God brought us to life. The same resurrection power is alive and well in us, but resurrection is the line of belief. So when you say, do I believe in Jesus? The question is, do I believe he's alive and living right now? Resurrection also compels that we go and tell. Our world loves to tell us that it's important to tell your story. Tell your story. And really, it's brilliant. Because here's the thing. We are people of story. Our favorite songs, it's a story. Our favorite books, it's a story. Our favorite movies, also a story. So when they say tell your own story, it it, it hits home with us. But here's the counterculture thing that Jesus asks you to do. Tell your story if you're going to tell what God did in you. But more than telling your story, tell Jesus' story. That's what we're called to do is to proclaim the gospel. Tell Jesus' story. And the last two about resurrection is it compels us to have joy. If death has been defeated, we can dance. If the job has been done, we can be set free. And if we're in covenant with Jesus, his victory is what? Our victory too.
Resurrection compels hope that Christ's victory is our own. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But this Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, may you hold on to this simple truth that Jesus so loved you that he became the least of these, that he died on the cross for your sins, but the Father approved it, and the Father raised him from the dead, and that same Christ is alive this morning. Amen? Amen. He is risen? He is risen indeed. I'd like to invite up the intercessors. We'd love to pray for you for anything that's happening in your life. I'd like to also invite up any pastors in the room. We'd love to pray for you. The beauty of resurrection is it doesn't stop on Calvary's cross or in that tomb. Maybe you need some resurrection this morning. Please come up. We'd love to pray for you. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.